The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Film Jitsu, the podcast that wields films like deadly weapons. We are your hosts. I am Jay. And I am Mike. This week, we're entering a fan base populated by angry, vociferous, and largely infantile white men, not unlike ourselves, who believe that entertainment should represent them exclusively, and who bristle at the notion of strong role models for people of color, women, or anyone that isn't straight. That's right. Film Jitsu is finally ripping off the cinematic band-aid and diving headlong into the Marvel Cinematic Universe with Mike's review of The Avengers. Jay? What? Did I I do the wrong thing? Did I watch the wrong movie? What do you mean? Did I watch the wrong movie? Oh, jeez, wait. (laughs) We're not talking about those Avengers. Oh. Right, no, not those Avengers. Right, 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 right. No, rather, we're supposed to be talking about The Avengers from 1998, a reworking of the 1960s British Mod Squad secret agent TV show that earned nine Razzie nominations and holds a 5%, that's right, 5% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And it's still extremely white. I believe at least we've got that. This is very white. <laughs> well, it stars Ray Fiennes. So right there, we just say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it stars Ray Fiennes, it stars Uma Thurman, and it's got Sean Connery. But it's an abomination that probably made Kevin Feige and the rest of the Marvel brass nervous about using the name Avengers back in 2012. It turned out all right enough for them, but Mike, how did it turn out for you? We'll find out, and afterward we'll reveal our bottom five secret agents. But first, let's roll the trailer. Emma Peel, doctor, atomic scientist, poet. How now, brown cow? John Steed, agent, member of secret elite intelligence arm, traditional. Good morning, constable. Extraordinary crimes against the people and the state must be avenged by agents extraordinary. Time and place for everything. Quite. If we still have an enemy. Now is the winter of your discontent. The weather is no longer in God's hands, but in mine. Hundreds of millions will die. They'll drown, burn, freeze. And this is merely the beginning. Let our rebels begin. After tea. Of course. Mike, there's a lot to unpack when discussing the Avengers, whether it's the abhorred puns, the stilted acting, complete lack of chemistry between the leads, or the incomprehensible character motivations. I think anyone viewing this movie, probably more than anything else, wonders who on earth thought any of this was a good idea. Was the sight of your beloved Uma Thurman in black latex enough to keep you sane during your viewing? Or did you descend into the rage of a dumb beast at the sight of Sean Connery 
in a teddy bear costume. Oh, the, mm. we'll get to the goddamn teddy bear costume. <laughs> Jay, uh, I, you know, I like movies, right? <laughs> and I like movies where they write a script and people <laughs> act it out and then they shoot the scenes. And the thing that I love the most is like when they finish all of that and then put it together and then that's a movie. Yeah. But the thing about the Avengers is they didn't finish any part of it before putting it together and giving it to us. I have never seen a movie that is more of a chopped up mangled mess of yeah. disparate moments and ideas and concepts and visuals than this thing. Jake, they didn't finish making the movie yeah, before they it released does feel it. That way. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I'm mean, for a motion picture with this kind of star power. And I guess we need to back that up a little bit, right? Because at the time, Ray Fiennes wasn't Ray Fiennes yet. Right. Uma yeah. Thurman wasn't yet Uma Thurman necessarily. Of course, Sean Connery was Sean Connery. And that was the big draw. <laughs> and man, if this didn't kill a career, I don't know what did. But mm. none of what came together was a completed product. Yeah. And... Honestly, I know I joke about this sometimes. Like, why wasn't this movie killed? Like, how come the stars didn't prevent this thing from being released? But I honestly need to know the background of how the studio yeah. put this product into the marketplace. Because all kidding aside, it is unforgivably an unfinished product. What's interesting is that word is that Warner Brothers, who produced the film, bought the rights of the original 1960s TV show, The Avengers, and tried to capitalize on that, really liked, for whatever reason, the film Diabolique by director Jeremiah Chichek. Now, Chichek has, up to that point, a kind of interesting career. He had kind of cut his teeth as a music video director, doing music videos for <laughs> Hall and Oates <laughs> and, and Van Hagar. Not Van Halen, but Van Hagar. And then one of my favorite movies, right? That's right. He moved on to one of your favorites, one of my son's favorite movies, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Oh, yeah. 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 So Chichek made that. Then he made Benny and June. Oh. <laughs> which a lot of people really liked. Yeah. It was an early starring vehicle. Not early, but I mean a, a pretty early starring vehicle for, for Johnny Depp. And then off to Diabolique, which stars Sharon Stone, Chasmet Palminteri, Kathy Bates, and an often- naked Isabel Ajani. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I recently watched it. And even though she's gorgeous and lovely to look at, it cannot save what is a really lurid remake of like a 1955 French mystery thriller. So this movie, Diabolique, came out, I guess. And then Warner Brothers Brass was like, yes, sign us up. We want you to helm the Avengers. And you know who else wanted to do the movie? No. David fucking Fincher wanted... <laughs> Yeah. This movie. David Fincher with Charles Dance as John Steed. No way. I think it's important we we probably set it up. Do you wanna do you wanna just quickly mention what it's about, or can you even I mean I think I'll do my best, but it's <laughs> I believe what it was supposed to be about are these two secret agents played by Ray Fiennes and, and Uma Thurman who come up against Sean Connery, who is I can't quite figure out what sort of international villain he is. If yeah. he's a mad businessman or a mad scientist, he's one of those guys who his name 
corresponds with his evil. He plays August de Winter, the guy who is going to Controls control weather. the weather, right? That's like yeah. the best example of this anywhere, anywhere in cinema is in Batman Forever when a man named Edward Nigma turns into the Riddler. <laughs> so August de Winter controls the weather and the idea here is that he's going to sell the rights to controlling the weather mm -hmm. to like the world leaders right the national security counselor whatever organizing body it is i don't know it's ludicrous he's he's basically elon musk but with hurricanes instead of twitter and i think what was supposed to be fun about <laughs> that was that James Bond was playing the James Bond villain. Correct. Right. That was supposed right. to that be was... the, the fun of it. You know, it never occurred to me. That's really great observation by you. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't I, even occur to me. I think that playing literally against type. Yeah. And yeah. it doesn't work, or it might have worked, yeah. but the way that the movie is chopped and edited together, it is very obvious to me that there were plots and subplots and bits of dialogue and conversations that were excised or moved around so that they don't make sense together. Things are referenced, but never referred back to. There's this bit where Sean Connery is in like his lair and he's playing these pipe organs. Like he's the goddamn <laughs> Phantom of, of the, the Opera. Opera. He's referring to Uma Thurman's character who I don't believe he is aware of yet in the plot. So I don't know how that makes sense. And you expect that maybe this is going to come back at some point in a Phantom of the Opera way. It doesn't. There's Never. so many things like this. First off, I want to, I don't want to move away from it before. I just mentioned the opening credits to this movie are how I knew I was in trouble because the opening <laughs> credits were like 1998, the credits. It was, it's, yeah, it's so true. I would just tell our audience that maybe all you need to watch are the opening credits and then whatever this like plushy teddy bear scene is later in the movie. <laughs> and you might be able to skip the whole thing. Also, Uma Thurman, you know, I love Uma Thurman, right? But mm, yeah. she has a British accent the way I like to pronounce Joaquin Phoenix. It's <laughs> it's different every time, right? So Yeah, it really is. She she adopted all of the municipalities of, of Great Britain. Yep, she, just... she was everywhere. Yeah, she was Liverpudlian for a while. She was from Essex. She was yeah. very posh. She got a little scouse for a little yep, bit there. Yep. Yeah, right. She went she full really like Dick did. Van Dyke at a certain point. It was all over the place. <laughs> Thorough Cockney accent. It's funny because Justin, my 12-year-old who watched the movie with me, see, this was a little bit of a twofer, right? Mm -hmm. I gave it to you and I knew I could torment you with it. Then I got to torment my oldest son with it as well. Just because I needed to revisit it because it was the first time I'd seen it since 1998 and I wanted to have something to talk about when we discussed it. So I went ahead and, and talked with him about it. He's a pretty big fan of Uma Thurman. And I know you are too. But it sounds like both of you. It just didn't work for you. I feel bad for the woman, honestly. She's given mm. this kind of juicy role in... Mm. What was, a, I think, a beloved franchise. I Yeah, Diana Rigg was, yeah. She gets mm -hmm. to act opposite the Sean Connery, wearing like a full set of Scottish fancy duds. As, as, <laughs> as he tells right. the World Council, he'll buy, the, they're going to buy the weather from him or whatever the hell he's doing. Jim Broadbent is in this movie, zipping around yeah. in a wheelchair like it's a goddamn motorized scooter. He's like Dr. Scott in Rocky Horror, just like zipping around in his scooter. 
playing mother and father in in the movie, which, again, this is probably a callback to the original series that I'm not familiar with. I love Jim Broadbent, but what the hell was Jim Broadbent doing in this movie? And what was with all the dandruff? I don't know. <laughs> I, so much dandruff on his. The thing, the thing about this movie is, I can't tell what was done on purpose. I can't tell what was done on accident. What was overlooked. I can't tell if the story doesn't make sense because something was taken out or if it just never made sense on the page. <laughs> Conceptually, plot wise, it's not very complicated. But when I'm watching the movie, I feel thoroughly confused the whole yeah. time because, yeah. you know, when you're kind of half watching a movie and you're like, oh, I think I missed something. Or when you're reading yeah. a book and you're falling asleep and you realize that you've been reading the same page over and over and you're like, oh, I got to go back, right? Yeah. It's that kind of thing. Only I was intently watching the film and still feeling like I was somehow missing it. And I decided that that actually isn't my fault, but the movie is really just this much of a mess. And it's no wonder that it turned out to be a, what, $40 million flop or whatever. This movie yeah, was... Yeah, it lost $40 million in, in $1993. Right. $40 million right. lost. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, from what I hear, with this movie, the big issue was they thought Chichek was the right guy to do it. They believed in him. They got the first cut, and they hated it. They hated whatever he had done. I guess they demanded... I think it was... It was nearly two hours or it was over two hours. And they demanded that it be under 90 minutes. That's how much they disliked it. Then they had a test screening afterward and they screened it in front of a largely Spanish-speaking audience in Arizona. <laughs> I want to do the math on this. So, <laughs> yeah, so right. they took an American director to an adapt a British a property... British starring yeah. Scotland's greatest movie star, screened it in Arizona for a largely Spanish-speaking population. Okay, all right, good, I'm, I'm with you, go. It sounds like the early 90s. I mean, <laughs> that sounds about right. It sounds as convoluted as the goddamn movie does. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting, when I watched the movie, and, and when I was watching it with my oldest son, he had very much the same feeling. As we watched it, we felt like we were watching a dream we felt like we were, we were in a dream because of the kind of fragmented logic that goes through it. You can sort of follow what's happening, but right. it doesn't really make sense. You're going from location to location. You're seeing familiar faces, but then you're not. People <laughs> suddenly show up in teddy bear costumes and kill one another. And uh -huh. it's truly the definition of surreal this movie i would have loved for any of that to have been on purpose <laughs> and right, that's the real wasn't. difference between you know a dreamlike surreal movie like a david lynch kind of film if that's your craft and you're doing it on purpose then it can work really effectively but you're right in that this feels like that because it's like somebody fell asleep behind the wheel yes. and it's just all, right. I mean, I said it felt a little bit like falling asleep watching a movie and I guess I wasn't thinking about the dreamlike aspect of it, but yeah, now that you mention it, I was wide awake and watching the movie and I felt like I was falling asleep during it because you're right. It is fragmented in the way that dreams often are yeah. familiar faces, familiar places, but like bizarre elements within no connective tissue from one thing to the Correct. next, but you're sitting there kind of accepting it all as making Correct. sense because you're right. supposed to. And it's not until like you wake up when you go, 
oh wait a minute none of that made any fucking sense what was <laughs> august de winter was dressed as a plushie selling weather to who oh <laughs> all right okay i guess yeah that's exactly where i went and i'm wondering it's funny because you mentioned like directors that may have done something like this intentionally right this clearly was a product of studio intervention oh boy and trying trying to make something out of what remained there's this whole sort of cheeky mrs peel thing mm -hmm. that goes throughout the whole thing you have to call her mrs peel she's always correcting people that just call her miss peel and it's never explained it's never really talked about but there was an entire subplot about her husband and him dying in a weather station that both she and he worked in and De Winter was responsible and all of this stuff. Personally, when I was watching it, I was looking for a payoff where John Steed was actually her husband. Right. And I thought for sure they were going to wrap it that way. At the end, there was going to be like a, a gimmicky, they've been flirting the yeah. whole time, but they're yeah. really together kind of thing. Yeah. But no. it wasn't. I nope. would have liked that, actually. That would have yeah. been really cool. But And so, with all that said, I feel like we could slice and dice ad nauseum <laughs> what doesn't make sense about yeah. the movie. Essentially, they filmed the rehearsal, and any other studio would have had the good sense to just shelf it. Just cut their losses and Batgirl the whole thing, right? Yeah, yeah. We could continue talking about that, but this is a cheeky movie that was supposed to be made that way. And so I think in that spirit, I would like to step back from the microphone a minute, because mm. what we have here for our listeners actually is <laughs> a guest reviewer for this movie who's going to come in and talk about the Avengers in a far more interesting way than I feel prepared to do. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce our audience to the next big thing in film criticism, JT Santo. Ladies and gentlemen, this is my son, Justin, age 12. He wanted to say a few words about the Avengers, so Mike and I thought that it was a good idea to go ahead and let him do so. It doesn't feel like a movie. If you go and watch it, it's very absurd. <laughs> Everything that's happening, the plot, just even the visuals at time is very dreamlike. <laughs> and true. sometimes this is actually quite fascinating and very interesting to me, but at other times it really ruins the movie for me and it defeats the purpose of, like... <laughs> <laughs> like a narrative movie watching yeah, right. yeah. exactly mm -hmm. what'd you think of the the teddy bear costumes uh, i feel like it wasn't necessary but i love it because it's just so convoluted yeah not many movies would do something like that for no real reason we, we should tell the audience how old are you i'm 12 right <laughs> what do you think of film jitsu justin you have thoughts on the show well, I think it's a good show, and I think it's a cool idea of how you guys painfully torture each other with bad <laughs> movies. I mean, it's different compared to other movie podcasts that would talk about good movies. <laughs> as a as a bystander, who's taken the most damage so far? As far as people, one making the other watch movies from what you've what you've heard. Who watched Cats? I watched Cats. Then you. Ow. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Well, thanks, Justin. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. So I got you good this time, didn't I? You did get me good. And as I was thinking about this movie, this is one of those kind of classically notorious bad movies. Yeah. We have done a fair amount of back and forth with our film jitsu 
aggression where we're really kind of specifically giving each other movies that we know the other isn't going to like personally. Right. And we haven't really done too many of the kind of greatest hits of bad mm-hmm. movies. But when you pull up a list of the worst movies made, the Avengers is, is usually on that list somewhere. And oh boy, does it deserve to be there. So I'm glad we kind of checked this one off our bucket list. I wish it hadn't been me. <laughs> Five, four, Three, two, one. Well, Mike, I, I went straight obvious when it came to picking the bottom five for this particular episode. I couldn't have been more obvious. But what was funny was how challenging it was to come up with the bottom five agents. Now, my approach, I tried to stay away from really obvious parodies or comedies that play super broad so stuff like Inspector Gadget or the Austin Powers movies are right out the window because that whole gimmick is the spy sucks at what he or she does. So there's no Melissa McCarthy, Bill Murray, or Steve Martin on here. Mm. But what about you? What was your approach? I went super not obvious with this one. <laughs> I, I perhaps thumbed my nose at the concept altogether. So I um, love it. Great. We'll find out a little bit more, but I would love for you to start us off. What was your number five? Well, my number five is Agent Cody Banks. <laughs> <laughs> you son of a bitch. You've never, you know, you've never seen this. Frankie Agent... Muniz, directed by Howard Zwart. <laughs> no, like, come not, on. No, it's not even that bad a terrible movie. It's just that it's, it's not even worse than the other movies that are in this genre of like, but it represents this idiotic subgenre about kids becoming spies. When did you watch Agent Cody Banks? I'm not arguing about the, the validity of the movie. When the fuck did Jason Santos sit down and was like, it's, oh, it's Agent Cody Banks day. Angie Harmon oh. was in Agent Cody Banks wearing an Uma Thurman-like outfit. And I happen to have spent many a Baywatch night. So it's... This is a child's movie. This isn't making it sound any better. This is... Okay, I hear what you're saying, though. Yes, the, ki- the, yes. the, the kids are spies no, thing. Okay. No, no, no. Yeah, it's just, it's, I happen to have seen it. Here's how it happened. I obtained many a movie and saved them for the kids for mm-hmm. like a Saturday morning or something yeah, like that. Yeah. And my littlest has a tough time watching movies in general, probably because I show him shit like the agent Cody Banks. <laughs> so I think there was another one called Catch That Thief that was around that time, which like a very young Kristen Stewart was in. Oh. I'm not sure I got the title right. Maybe somebody can write in to Jay at filmjitsu.net and remind me of what that movie was. Ooh, maybe Kristen Stewart could do that. That would be fun. If you are Kristen Stewart, please write us at Jay. At filmjitsu.net or Mike at filmjitsu.net and let us know what time you can come over for lunch. (laughs) You're always inviting people to lunch. I want to have lunch with people. All right. So this movie really isn't that bad. It's fun. Frankie Muniz is really charismatic. He's a cool kid. But this whole idea of like an aw shucks, golly gee, wide eyed, goofy kid that suddenly becomes like an action packed hero that dodges all the explosions and does all the things Mm. gets really stupid it's just it's tiring it's dumb any child would be dead within the first 10 seconds of <laughs> shit getting real uh-huh. <laughs> like, yeah. you know whether it's the spy kids or it's the spy next door or my spy the same same thing it would always be the same thing so th- this movie i was fine with watching or whatever else but it represents this entire thing which to me 
is my number five. Kids that are spies. I just use the Agent Cody Banks as my movie. Mike, let me throw it over to you. What's your number five? Well, when we're talking about agents in Hollywood... I have an idea that you're going to do talent agents, aren't you? It's Chris Kattan's <laughs> agent for letting him leave Saturday Night Live to pursue leading man status in Hollywood. He was he was still on Saturday Night Live, and his agent was like, no, 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 do Monkey Bone. Okay, okay, now do Corky Romano. That went so well, you should quit Saturday Night Live, where you are a mainstay. People love your crazy little Mr. Peepers characters. Why don't you quit that and keep doing this thing because Monkey Bone and Corky Romano worked out so well? His career tanked. Like, all-time crash and burn. Real quick for our listening audience. I mentioned Monkey Bone. I mentioned Corky Romano. Can you tell me one other title that Chris Kattan did after those movies? Of course you can't. I can. Night at the Roxbury. No, no that was before. That was before. he did. Oh, that was before. Uh-huh. Oh. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Bad. Night at the Roxbury, which, again, tied to the Saturday Night Live thing. I mean, like, Chris Kattan did okay with Monkey Bone, but then it was the whole... I think it was the whole SNL properties thing. that It was the Corky Romano and then literally everything that came after that. And listen, this is not about Chris Kattan. This is about his agent. We're here to talk about agents. Right. Chris Kattan paid a person to guide his career. And what he did (laughs) was push him out of Saturday Night Live and into just an absolute thundering explosion of a, a film yeah. career. So sure. that's my got number it. five. Okay. That is a great choice. I think you've got it. I left it open. I didn't mm-hmm. say secret agents. You did not. I didn't say spies. You, right? I said agents yep. very specifically because I knew I had a feeling you were like, fuck this. <laughs> I spent a lot of time trying to come up with like chemical agents, like whatever that green stuff was in the rock, <laughs> that thing. <laughs> like, Oh, that would have been great. Yeah, it that I my brain pretty much stopped at the rock though, and that's another Sean Connery property. So I was like, nah, I, yeah. you know what? Just bad agents. We're done picking on. Yeah, we're done picking on the con. Yeah. Well, now my number four, I kept with it. You know, it's the spy who dumped me. <laughs> yes, this is another movie that I've actually seen, <laughs> and it's not exactly the same kind of thing as my first pick. So before I get pegged for being unoriginal. And picking a movie that's representative of an entire genre of movies where average people somehow outwit secret agents. Mm. Just know that's not exactly why I picked this movie. Most of these movies with adults that quote unquote become agents typically aren't as dumb as the kid movies because they're for adults. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And not many are dumb enough to accept like something like Paul Blart Mall Cop becoming (laughs) Ethan Hunt, right? Right, right. But what's weird about this genre is that the secret agents that surround the inept adults frequently are just as idiotic as the non-agents. In this flick, it was Mila Kunis and the always hilarious and awesome Kate McKinnon Mm. who play two normal ladies who get embroiled in a spy versus spy game when it's discovered that Kunis's recent ex was a spy who had some kind of MacGuffin or another, I don't, I don't even remember what it was. How could anybody? It's care? always like a knock list. 
Yeah, whatever that is. I, I'm still trying to figure out what the fucking knock list is, and that movie came out a hundred years ago. The whole thing plays out in a really surprisingly violent and funny way. But at the end of the day, you're supposed to accept that Justin Theroux's character is somehow a criminal genius spy, yet could not somehow overcome these two clumsy chicks who spend 90% of the movie screaming through insane gunfights, elaborate martial arts combat, and completely bonkers car and motorcycle chases. What kind of secret agents miss this often? Were they trained by stormtroopers? <laughs> I like the movie for what it's worth, but these were some seriously dumbass spies, which I guess makes it acceptable at the end when Kunis and McKinnon, of course, become spies. Because it's that easy, apparently. <laughs> if a normal person gets wrapped up in some sort of near-death spy caper, at the end they get to be spies too? Like, that's not... How it this works. This is not how it works. That's not how it works. <laughs> not that we know how it works because nothing works that way. That's not how anything works. <laughs> if you're going down the highway and you almost die in a car crash, they don't just tell you you get to drive for NASCAR after that. Like, that's not how anything works. <laughs> what is your number four? Speaking of how nothing w should work. My number four is Halle Berry's agent for letting her book Catwoman, Catwoman four years after winning an Oscar. After you win Ooh. an Oscar, this is not how it's supposed to work. No. Halle Berry still hasn't recovered. She won Best mm -mm. Actress for Monsters Ball in 2001. And that's a gut punch of a performance. She is mm -hmm. phenomenal in that movie. Astoundingly good in that role. So what agent in their right mind lets her book Catwoman after that. <laughs> I defy you to find a single film of consequence that she's done since 2004. You can't do it. The movie absolutely killed her career. She has done some more of those X-Men movies, but she was doing those already before Catwoman. She mm. has not had an original film property that she's done since that movie that matters worth a damn. And Oof. it's it's really kind of it's a real bummer you know i mean her oscar win was historically significant so mm. whichever agent allowed that to go down it wasn't like ah <laughs> uh, you know helly maybe you don't want to have the distinction of having an oscar and a razzie that shouldn't be a thing that you do no just no you know what it's fine just go ahead it was where's meryl streep's razzie though unforgivable so <laughs> that's Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, that's my number four. Man, they get worse from here? They do. That's hard to imagine. They do. Wow. Okay. All right. So you've Chris Kattan and Halle Berry's agents. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go with my number three, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, a movie you hate. Uh, well, yeah, no, I hate it. The character of Mac, played by Ray Winstone. The turncoat spy is one of, that appears in so many movies, but rarely has there been one that's as confusingly inept as Mac from this much reviled movie. I'm overly and overall positive about. I like Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Maybe it's just because I had to watch it a lot with mm. my kids. Yep. But it's a movie that I really enjoy. But I have to confess that Mac, who is, again, he's really well played as smarmy and self-preserving by the great Ray Winstone. He's a character that works in service only to keep the plot going. His selfish interests are cartoonish, and his constant flipping from one side to another 
makes him really hard to follow. Winstone is charismatic and he's goofily likable, but I had a really hard time believing this oafish fool could have been a Cold War era super spy <laughs> that rode shotgun on Indy's 1960s yeah. adventures. At the end of the movie, he's cramming jewels and gold into his pants and shirt like a silent era film comedy villain. <laughs> the most offensive part is that last wink he gives to Indy as he's like sucked into the spinning mechanism of the ancient Aztec aliens or whatever the hell it was. He says, I'll be all right. <laughs> and then he gets pulled and then the temple crashes into ruin around him and all this stuff. And yeah, maybe he will be because nothing else about him made sense either. So there you go. <laughs> Number three, Mac from Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I mean, I'm going to support Kingdom of the Crystal Skull appearing on a bottom five in any way, shape, oh, or form. Man. So I agree. You're right. You're right. That is one of many <laughs> ways that that could appear on a bottom five list. <laughs> For my number three, Lawrence Fishburne was having himself a moment in the early 90s. King of New York in 1990, Boys in the Hood, What's Love Got to Do With It in 93 is Ike mm. Turner that earned him yeah. an Oscar nomination. Then in 1994, he was offered a role in a bizarre little indie film being made by an up-and-coming director, and his agent convinced him to pass on it. They didn't want him to waste his star power by sharing the screen with a has-been like John Travolta. <gasps> of course, yep, yeah, you know where I'm going with this. The movie was Pulp oh. Fiction, the director was Quentin Tarantino, and the role was Jules Winfield that ultimately went to Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, man. Yeah. Whoa. He turned down Pulp Fiction because his agent Ooh. didn't want him to share the screen with Travolta. He would land the role of Morpheus in 99. Oh, yeah. He would be okay. But man, what could have been? When you think of the roles <laughs> just that Sam Jackson has done with Tarantino alone, Jackie yeah. Brown, Kill Bill Volume 2, Django, Hateful Eight. I have to put Larry Fishburne's agent on my list for taking away the opportunity to have some of these really juicy roles. There aren't a lot of characters as synonymous with a single decade as the character of Jules is with the 1990s. Mm. And advising him to turn down that gig is some especially shitty advice. He didn't really do a whole hell of a lot worth talking about in those five years between no. Pulp Fiction and The Matrix. Matrix, yeah. He landed on his feet. And of course, you know, he's gone on to be a big deal. Lawrence Fishburne is a well-respected guy. And Sam Jackson has gone on to do a billion D other things. I also understand that this also caused him to lose out on Sam Jackson's role in Die Hard with a Vengeance as well. Like oh, Sam Jackson no got that role over Fishburne because of the work he had done in Pulp Fiction. So hmm. it just, no, none of it worked out. Lawrence Fishburne's okay, but man, his agent telling him to back off of Pulp Fiction in 94, fuck that guy. How sad is it sort of an indictment of Hollywood when you're talking about two leading man black actors and that's they're the two contenders for all of these really mm -hmm. large roles? Like just these two guys and often shamefully confused. There's this really great clip on the internet where this guy was interviewing Sam Jackson and confused him for Lawrence Fishburne. Oh, come on. And Sam Jackson just eviscerates this guy. 
You know what? We don't all look alike. You're exactly all black and famous. You are guilty. I am. I. I am guilty. I am guilty. He thought you were Bob Dylan. Right. You're the entertainment reporter. I know. You're the entertainment reporter for this station. And you don't know the difference between me and Lawrence My mistake. My mistake. I apologize. Really, my big mistake. Let's talk about. That must be a very short line for your job. I'll say. No. It probably would not be hard to get another person to sit right here. Let's talk about Robocop. Oh, hell no. <laughs> really? Oh, really? Yeah, unfortunately, Hollywood So White has been confusing these two guys pretty much forever. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, th that's a really great point that you make. <laughs> that's gross. I want to get back to Secret Agents. My number two is from Mission Impossible 1996. We referenced it earlier. And I'm talking about Jack Harmon. Don't know who he is? No, nobody would. It's Emilio Estevez's character. Mm -hmm. Look, agents get killed in the line of duty. It happens. And director Brian De Palma rebooted the Mission Impossible franchise to a level of success that no one could have foreseen. And how did he do it? He introduced a team of spies filled with terrific, charming personalities that harken back to the original show and then killed all but one of them. Mm. Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt. I really like Mission Impossible, both the original movie and the franchise as a whole. Yeah, I do too. But man, uh, Emilio Estevez was used as bait. And wow, <laughs> did he prove to be a bad agent. Not one for the field, Emilio's Jack Harmon was more of a behind-the-scenes guy. And while working on top of an elevator, the thing, controlled by double agent Jim Feltz, played by universally loathed John Voight, thrusts upward, you know, this elevator, uh -huh. forcing poor Emilio into a spike. <laughs> it's the kind of death that's usually reserved for, like, a bit part player. Mm -hmm. But man, it comes off as as overly complicated and contrived especially for a smart guy like Harmon. He got the Drew Barrymore treatment, right? That's it, literally what I was yeah. thinking, yes. He is basically Mission Impossible's Drew Barrymore as she was to scream. Yes, uh -huh. absolutely. Uh -huh. They were trying to pull like a, hey, there's a big name guy and we're going to kill him. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, maybe this pick is a cheat. You know, maybe I'm just too big a fan of Repo Man. Or, but, <laughs> you know, seeing Emilio go just didn't seem right. And I think he deserved better. And, you know, unlike Drew Barrymore, he didn't get a talk show after the movie. You know, he in fact, he, he after 1996, Emilio largely shrunk from the spotlight, largely moving behind the camera, with the exception of those stupid Mighty Ducks sequels and like the series that came out in 2021. But had he not died, maybe things would be different. Maybe he'd be Simon Pegg in Mission Impossible 37, Grind Force Wind. <laughs> All I say is justice for Emilio. Just, That's it. You know what? I would still pay top dollar to see Grindhouse Wind or whatever the hell it is. Grind Force Wind. Oh, oh good. Grind Force Wind. Mission yeah, that Impossible sounds great. Mission Impossible 37, Grind Force Grind, Wind. Okay. Uh, you know what? If they break it up into two parts, I'd, see, I'd go watch both of them. It's going to be three parts. Oh, good. Well, grind, force, and win. <laughs> Mission. So wait a minute. This is a universe where there's a movie called Mission Impossible Grind, Mission Impossible Force, and Mission Impossible Wind. That's what you're saying? Yes. Okay. You know grind what? Force, win. You know what? I'll still pay 15 bucks to go see it. My number two 
I'm going back to 1981 here because that's the year I think Faye Dunaway's agent did her dirty mm. by letting her star in Mommy Dearest. Oh, you're crazy. Dunaway. You're crazy. No, I'm not. Follow me here. I think you no, right. here's no. why. Dunaway was a revered, decorated, celebrated actress at this point in her career. And certainly Hollywood has never been kind to actresses on the other side of 40. Yeah. Yeah. Her enormous, huge portrayal of Joan Crawford in this movie. If you haven't seen the movie, it's almost impossible to describe the enormity of the performance that she has here. Right. Nobody had seen this before from Faye Dunaway. Mm -hmm. And I, I think what happened is that, it kind of turned the public against her or formed a perception of Faye Dunaway that I don't think her career ever recovered from. Mm. I'm not criticizing the performance. I think I could hear you say, I think you, we were about to have a fight over this movie and, and I don't think mm. that we are, but what happened here is that she had kind of this lunatic character mm-hmm. that was such a big performance in a very specific way that, she never recovered yeah. after that yeah. from a career no, perspective. Yeah. She had some box office misses. She did some TV work. She has worked steadily since then. I mean, she continued mm-hmm. to make a lot of films, but she never regained that Oscar winning revered form. And even in mm-hmm. fact, herself in a 2016 interview said, I think it turned my career in a direction where people would irretrievably have the wrong impression of me. And that's yeah. an awful thing to beat. Uh, I think it's true. Yeah. I think that's true. It's and a so kind of typecasting. It it's, is. It basically, yeah. It is. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah, yeah. shame on an agent that killed one of the brightest stars of the 60s and 70s by allowing her to essentially flame out in a movie that required a huge performance but one that would back her into such a specific corner. Audiences could never see her as anything else. Hard to blame the agent so much as the, that's such a juicy part. Uh, I think that it's more a product of society and, and you noted it too, saying there isn't a lot of opportunity necessarily, or wasn't and still isn't enough opportunity for women over the age of 40 in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And I think that they do get, sort of pigeonholed and they have to go for what they get. That was a juicy role and she really sunk her teeth in it for sure. It did forever color the, how audiences saw her going forward. And for sure, perhaps they should have been able to see that. Yeah. Maybe they should have been able to, I think so. But I, I, yeah. And I guess, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of a combination of knowing that society would view it that way yeah. and not being able to advise her. Yeah. Yep. So I get what you're saying. Yeah. I get what you're saying. For a minute, I thought you were going to talk smack about my Faye Dunaway though. And no, I we no, no. Come to we'll talk about her a lot on this show. Honestly, we, <laughs> we do. Up, I really we bring up a big Bonnie fan. and Clyde as often as possible. Yeah. We've talked about her yeah. a lot. Network. Yeah. I, I am, I am just such a big fan, but, and I really do like her performance in mommy dearest as camp as it might be. It's very um, campy, it's, but it's, it's yeah. great. Yeah. Well, neat choice, man. I'm looking forward to your number one. My number one is a movie from 2002 called The Tuxedo, which stars (laughs) Jackie Chan. I am not saying it's Jackie Chan. This this is look. (laughs) I saw this in a movie theater. I I like all of these, but like 
wow, this perfectly resembles the final of my archetypes and probably the most dumb. The agent that relies on gadgets to be an agent, exhibiting little else in the way of skills or smarts. Because of James Bond's Q created weaponry, yeah. there have been a number of spy movies with heroes that would be otherwise average Joes were it not for a particular device. It's like a, a super suit or a tricked out car. <clears throat> Michael Knight. Anyway. <laughs> you are welcome. In the tuxedo, we get the ultimate super suit, a ludicrous creation that turns Jackie Chan's cab driver into an agent supreme. And, and that's okay because it's Jackie Chan. <laughs> I mean, I I will buy Jackie in any role as long as at some point he kills somebody accidentally with a soap on a rope or a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> but in the tuxedo, he obtains this titular suit while driving for an alleged super spy that's played by British actor, actor Jason Isaacs, who's best known to Harry Potter fans as Lucius Malfoy. Here, without the Edgar Winter hair, he's a third-rate Bond knockoff, the kind of guy that might have been considered as Bond in 2002, but he did, but didn't get it, and then tried to console himself by taking this part. The movie gives Devlin nothing to do but spout bad dialogue while appearing debonair. But really, he just looks bored. At one point, he's in a hospital completely covered with bandages, and it's so obvious that Isaacs isn't in the scene that it's laughable. <laughs> Jennifer Love Hewitt, at the time, she was only 22, puts up with a lot in the tuxedo, and many would argue that she's the quote-unquote worst agent in the movie, but her character is a noob, and she manages to KO plenty of people. <laughs> Isaacs? He didn't even get out of the way of a bomb on a remote control car. So absolutely a number one. I took money from my wallet and gave it to another person <laughs> so that I could sit and watch the tuxedo. <laughs> the tuxedo. That's something I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life. I know I often reference my own deathbed on this show. That's going to be one of those things where I'm on the deathbed and be like, shit, I had those two hours that I watched the tuxedo. Damn it. <laughs> That's, yeah, that's the thing. I don't think it's all that bad. The scene where they nearly kill James Brown is hilarious because Jackie Chan at one point, like, the suit is taking control, right? So so James Brown taps him on the shoulder and he flips James Brown. And when he does, they dub in the, ow! Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that was good. That was good. <laughs> and Peter Stormare was in it, which was, you know, he was pretty freaking funny. So, I you know, I think it has its... It's it's positive points. Wait, is this your secret favorite movie? I'm hearing a lot of stuff that you really like all of a sudden. Is this your new secret favorite? Between this and Agent Cody Banks. Hmm. Maybe these aren't secrets. Okay. Maybe maybe my bottom five is really a top five. Yeah, I feel like you're confessing jitsu. some things to me. I feel like we've reached a new level of understanding with each other. Well, yeah. in the spirit of understanding, I did want to kind of respect the process a little bit. And so oh, my okay. number one is a is a traditional pick in the same vein as yours, but it's also a little bit of paying my dues for past mistakes because hmm. I absolutely should have included Leslie Nielsen's Frank Drebin in our bottom five cops list. It has to be, of course, Leslie Nielsen's agent WD-40 from 1996's Spy Hard. This is exactly what I didn't do with my. It's exactly what you didn't do with your pick. 
Right. It is, I think, the perfect model of the spy mm -hmm. parody. It takes all of the archetypes that you're railing against and crams them into one, one character yeah. and shows us why you're right about all of your picks, why all of these things are so dumb. Mm. Codename WD-40 here. <laughs> He's everything that makes Leslie Nielsen great as a performer because he relies on gadgets like you're talking about, but can't use them. He's... <laughs> An age, he's not a kid, but this one, you know, he's a little bit kind of an older guy. He's not that right, he's handsome the suave. Yeah, he's yeah. all of the things you're talking about. They smash together into this one parody that only Leslie Nielsen could pull off. I don't think <laughs> Spy Hard is as funny as the Naked Gun movies. No way. But yeah, it works. It definitely, you know, fits a specific kind of comedy. I will watch Leslie Nielsen do his thing until the end of my days. So for me. Because you were so right about everything that you said, that's my number one. Well, he's no Cody Banks. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> oh, that's so creepy. <laughs> Mike, I wanted to go original with our kick two pick two this time around. I mean, I did say agents, so I gave it some real hard thought. And what I came up with was exactly what everyone would have expected. <laughs> Perfect. So for kick two pick two, we're choosing two secret agents out of four. Okay. All right. And if you're anything like me, I'm not sure that you care about any of the four okay. of these. But, okay. But for kick two pick two this week, we've got James Bond. Jason Bourne, Ethan Hunt, or Austin Powers. Okay. From that list of four, who are the two that you keep and who are the two that you burn in the eternal oh. hellfires? <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, I guess it depends on how I want to think about this. So uh, give me some guidance here. Are you asking me to choose the movies, the film franchises, or like if I'm putting together a team? Is it these guys? Like, what are we? What are we if, going? If here you for? thought I thought it through that much, then you've <laughs> greatly overestimated okay. me. I would say personally, it's the ones that are most entertaining. It just comes down to that. So, okay. what were the movies? What's the series of movies that are most entertaining? What are the? Which ones would I want to revisit? The Bond movies. You got the breadth of yeah. decades to choose from bond is like a time capsule right, exactly yeah right from yeah the 60s to right now austin powers is uh -huh. a reference to that 60s time capsule but yeah. then sort of making fun of it and i think maybe like 2001 mike merrigan got a real chuckle out of austin powers I'm going to guess if I watched it now, I might be disappointed mm -hmm. in myself. I know that a lot of that humor hasn't aged well. I hope that I have probably aged beyond a lot of that humor. Mm. Uh, yeah, I feel like if I went the rest of my life without ever watching Austin Powers, I'd be fine there with that. There you go. There's one. I feel like I'm okay to let Austin Powers go. All right. And I'm going to keep on. So now I'm down between... Jason Bourne and Ethan Hunt. Yeah. Uh, Jason Bourne is named Jason, and historically, I hate those guys. Yeah, they have, they're a bunch of fucks. Yeah, Yeah, sure. I mean, Jason Voorhees, I love that guy. There's this other Jason that I can't fucking stand. I know, he's um, a bitch. <laughs> he's, he is a real bitch. <laughs> but those movies are great. And 
uh, hmm. This isn't only for me though, right? So I mean, we, you got to do this too. So I want to hear. I, I want to hear yours. Oh. Yeah, yeah. We, we do this together. This is tough. Yeah, for sure. I too would ditch Austin Powers very quickly. Okay. All right. I think for me, it's it's Austin Powers and Jason Bourne that get kicked. Okay. And because I feel as though, and this is this is too bad for Jason Bourne in some ways, but the James Bond series, the Daniel Craig movies, learned from the Jason Bourne movies. Okay. And as a result, we sort of still get Jason Bourne and Daniel Craig's. Uh-huh. So we don't get the amnesiac agent that goes out yeah. and kicks everybody asses. But honestly, I think we get better plots than that. I think I would leave Jason Bourne on the cutting room floor and I would definitely kick Austin Powers. So it's for me, it's James Bond and Ethan Hunt. Yeah. I love the Mission Impossible movies. I mean, some people would really bristle at the fact that my son was raised more with the Mission Impossible movies and hasn't yet seen a James Bond movie. Uh Uh-huh. But I just, Uh I know what is more interesting to him at his age. And maybe he would like the latter day James Bond movies, but I want him to be mature enough to see some of the older ones before he, um, I've sort of waited. Whereas the Ethan Hunt movies, I was able to get him early and, and get him into it i'm there with you i, I think oh, that we agree <laughs> we uh, the rare agreement well mm. I, part of it is that these mission impossible movies are still happening mm-hmm. it seems as though the born series is over and done with i know yeah, there's right. a, like a television treadstone spinoff thing <laughs> i couldn't care less and maybe yeah, that's right. the sign that mission impossible needs to be my pick tom Cruz is an insane person. Yeah. <laughs> whatever whatever I need to say that doesn't get me in trouble with the law, that's what I think about Tom Cruise. But Or Scientology. You might yeah, want to be careful I don't with want, them, Yeah, too. I don't need any of that. But yeah. God damn it, if those movies don't just entertain the shit out of me yeah, time really and time do. and time again. Every time I see Tom Cruise performing a stunt for one of these movies, it blows my mind. I watched him perform the stunt for Dead Reckoning Part 1 where he drives a motorcycle off a cliff and then base jumps. Jesus. And what you don't see in the actual film is they CGI the ramp. So he's going off a ramp, evil Knievel style, but he goes through these perfectly placed drones that are floating around where he's going to be jumping to capture all these great angles. And oh so my God. they're still trying to one up themselves in a way that I think is interesting and exciting and continues to work. And so for me, yeah, I want, I want to see more of these Tom Cruise mission impossible movies. I want to have that throwback to the old James Bond. And I don't yeah. want to live in a world where I don't get to see Connery be bond sure. because then I'm left with Connery only as August de winter. <laughs> and I can't have that. I would love to hear from our audience. This uh, pick two, kick two. Part of the reason we have shifted to pick two, kick two is because we want to hear back from the audience. What are your two? Drop us a line at Mike at filmjitsu.net or Jay at filmjitsu.net. Hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, all those social places. Let us know who you would pick and specifically why it is definitely not Austin Powers. And tell Mike your lunch plans while you're at it. Come come hang out for lunch. Come have lunch with us. If you're Uma Thurman or Kristen Stewart, please come have lunch. If you're not, come have lunch. It's fine. Everybody's welcome to lunch. No, man, but we swingers were rebelling against as uptight squares like you, whose bag was money and world domination. We were innocent, man. If we'd known the consequences of our sexual liberation, we would have done things differently, but the spirit would have remained the same. 
It's freedom, baby. Yeah. Jay? Yeah? We're at that part of the show where I get to reveal what movie I want you to watch for our upcoming episode. And there's a movie that I've been, it's been on my radar for a long time, and I honestly don't know what to make of it. Mm. And uh, what I can tell you is that the trailer for this movie exhausts me. Oh, dear. And I think that the concept of this movie exhausts me. The fact that it is an hour and 36 minutes long of this trailer and concept is more than I can possibly bear. Hmm. And so I'm giving it to you before the day comes that you give it to me. (laughs) For our next episode, I want you to watch from 2015, a film shot entirely from the first person perspective of its main character. I would like you to watch Hardcore Henry. I I have that movie and I haven't watched it yet. So... It seems unbearable to me. It's like Crank from a first-person perspective, is what it looks like. Yeah, I mean, what I think is, it might be like watching an hour-and-a-half video game that you're not playing, which I understand is what the kids do these days. That's watching (laughs) other people play video games is a thing. But you're certainly no spring chicken. So I'm really interested, because I think this is a movie where you're not going to end up in the middle here. You're either going to hate this yeah. Or you might really go for it. And yeah, I'm, it's I'm kind of pleased either way. I think you may admire a lot of what's going on, but also just want it desperately to stop. I don't know. As always, I hope that you hate it. <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> but we'll see. I'm excited because, like I said, I have a copy of it here. So it's, oh, it's a movie that's been in my queue for a few years. Uh-huh. Oddly, it's a movie that I've never gotten to. <laughs> How about that? I wonder why. I wonder why. (laughs) A little while back, Jay, you sort of despicably accused me of being uncreative when it comes to these bottom fives. That hurt. That hurt a little bit ago. You mean like, like, what was that? Like maybe 10 minutes ago? Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, I mean, I know you're sitting there being like, what is it going to be? Bottom five Henry's? Bottom five hardcores? You know what? Screw you. Okay. Because by my calculation... This episode comes out on my birthday. Oh. And so, because I don't have any good ideas for a Hardcore Henry bottom five list, and because it's my goddamn birthday, what we're going to do for this episode is our bottom five birthdays. We're going to do our bottom five movie birthdays, having absolutely nothing to do with Hardcore Henry and everything to do with the fact that it's my birthday. Maybe it's Hardcore Henry's birthday. We don't know. We don't, maybe that's what he's so angry about. Maybe that's what he's so hardcore about. Maybe he's, he's just so hardcore. like really into his birthday. I don't know. You're going to find out. But I decided this has been on my radar for a really long time, and I just couldn't come up with a good bottom five to go along with it, which is why I haven't pulled the trigger on it yet. <laughs> Your birthday. And so that's it. It's my birthday present to myself is we're going to do our bottom five birthdays and watch Hardcore Henry or you are. Awesome. And so that's the plan for our next episode. What say you? I say nothing. (laughs) Until next time, I was Jay. Well, it's my birthday, though. And he was Mike. I was. see you next time. Okay. What year did Jurassic Park come out?
Was it 91? No, I know. <laughs> 94? We're getting Was there. that in high school or out of high school? I don't know. You might have been in Jurassic Park, actually. <laughs> you fucking jerk. <laughs>